Welcome to Centering, the podcast on Asian American Christianity. I'm your host, Irene Cho. This season, we're featuring guests with various perspectives on Asian American topics and the church. Thanks for joining us. Hello, all, and welcome back to Centering. I'm your host, Irene Cho. I am so excited for this final episode of the season to end on a very extremely relevant conversation about Asian American representation in media, the industry, music, art, movies, all of it. And I am here with such a special guest. Well, actually two special guests because one is our producer, uh, Jason Chu. And I'm so excited that he will be joining us as a guest and not just our producer from the music industry perspective on Asian American representation, especially in hip hop music. And our second special guest is Nancy Wong Yoon. And I am so excited to have her. It was such a pipe dream that she would even be available for this. And um, with all the stars aligning, it was such a special privilege that she was available for this time. So I'm so excited. Nancy, I'm going to throw it over to you. So please tell us a bit about where you're from and what you're doing right now. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Nancy Wong-Yoon, and I am I'm currently a sociologist, a professor at Biola University. And I wrote a book on actors of color and racism in Hollywood. It's called Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. And that was published a few years ago. I've also done a report on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in primetime television, as well as MENA actors, so Middle Eastern North African actors in primetime television. And so I, you know, I write a lot about representation and race, and I critique Hollywood. I love Hollywood. I hate Hollywood. So all those things, it's, uh, we're, you know, it's, it's part of our lives, right? And I think that it has so much influence, not just nationally, but internationally. And that's why it's really important. And I think that from the sociologist perspective, I think we don't talk about the influence of popular culture enough on society. And I think that that's my role as a sociologist to really uh, consider, you know, how the racism and sexism and all the bigotry in society is reinforced by media and feeds into media. So I think it's it's such a it's such a fun topic to talk about, but it's also a really important. And I'd like to develop, you know, the critical kind of media literacy for everyone, so that people don't um, just watch it, you know, without thinking, but really uh, consider what these images mean and how they can impact what we think about society. Yes. If you are not on Twitter, I would strongly suggest to take this as an opportunity to get on Twitter so that you could follow Nancy because she is a powerhouse. And you can also, if you're on Facebook, follow her Facebook page. So she just drops all the wisdom nuggets and all the insight. I mean, it's like a daily, I stalk her, insightful daily meditation kind of thing where it's like, okay, Nancy, just she punches all the truth out and it's wonderful. So I strongly encourage all of you listening to please do follow her because it's it's just such a delight, and I'm learning every day so much about this, even for myself and my growth. So we don't have a lot of time, but we have this big subject that we want to talk about, so I want to dive in. Obviously, this past weekend, the, a significant movie has dropped on Netflix called Always Be My Maybe with Ali Wong and Randall Park, and I watched it. I don't know the, those of you who are listening, if you have, if you have not, please please go watch it, not just once, but multiple times. I've watched it several times over this weekend. First, dedicated focus, and then just in the background. I'm just like, I'm just going to have it in the background all 
all the time um, listening to it. And it's so wonderful. Obviously, that movie has just dropped. Crazy Rich Asians has come out. BTS, the Korean K-pop band, is on all the national circuits. There just seems to be a lot of amazing, fun things happening for Asians and Asian Americans in media right now. And yet, I want to throw the question, because I feel what I am concerned with is that I feel like it's going to be this checkmark box for white Hollywood now and saying like, oh, cool, we've done it. We've made it. We're good with the diversity in particular for Asian Americans. Now let's move on to quote unquote normal life. And I just want to throw that question. Are we done? Have we made it? Like, what does this mean for us as Asian Americans as we move forward? That's a really good question. I think a lot of uh, Asian Americans in the industry are thinking about that, like especially creatives are are thinking, is this just a trend? Should, can we ride the trend? How long can we ride the trend? How long is it going to last? Uh, is it too good to be true? Because, I mean, even prior to Crazy Rich Asians, really the, the biggest kind of studio, there were little ones in between, but really it would have been 25 years with Joy Luck Club and then Crazy Rich Asians. I mean, 25 years is an entire generation, right? To, right. to have been missing, like really studio level, A level, A list actors. And, and those, you know, those Joy Luck Club actors are actually still with us. And, and they are still making movies and a lot of them, their success was because of that exposure. And I know that Creative Rich Asians will do the same for its actors. And yeah, it's like we can still count them on one hand. And so, <laughs> uh, but I think that the landscape is totally different now than it was back then because we have streaming platforms. We have a lot more, um, and we also have YouTube, right? So let's not forget about the Asian American YouTubers. And so we have more content available and some more outlets. We've always had Asian American creators and, you know, films and content created by Asian Americans, but they were always on the kind of indie. And I think the first indie breakthrough was Better Luck Tomorrow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lynn, and I still remember that being in college, I think. And it was a huge, yep. it was huge. And we thought that was going to be it, right? But I don't yep. even know if any of those actors are besides maybe, well, John Cho, I guess. John Cho, right. And, and, and Sung, Sung Kang, Sung Sung Kang, Kang yeah. but not everybody, right? right. And, and, but Justin, Justin Lin has had, you know, a very long and healthy career since then with yeah. Fast Furious and Star Trek. And um, now he has Warriors on Cinemax. But I think that, yeah, that's now we have indie filmmakers and indie, I mean, I wouldn't maybe always be my maybe is not indie, but it's still create this creators and co-writers. And stars are all Asian American, and even even the director is a woman of color, who's you know Nanatra Khan, right? And so it's very much a um, a driven by Asian American creatives, and I think that lends a robustness that I think we haven't seen really. I mean, Jarla Club was you know it was Amy Tan's book, and it was Wang Wang, right, the director. So that 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 was that why that was why it was so special. And, and now we have more creators, right, who are breaking through and also more content um, and YouTube. And so I think that the, the promise of a robust and vibrant future is there. And I think that even like, it's like last summer was Asian August, right? Because we had uh, Crazy Rich Asians to All the Boys I Loved Before and then Searching. And, and now this summer, we have more films coming out. We have The Farewell, we have Blinded by the Light, we have Late Night. And, and then, of course, we also have international, you know, stuff that, that between collaborations between Asia and Hollywood. And so I think that there is actually a lot more, just more content. Like, so for example, when I started on Twitter, I would 
my book is about, you know, just people of color and actors of color in general. So I would tweet about everybody. And now I can't even keep up <laughs> with the Asian American news. Like every, you know, day, it seems like there's a new news about some actor being cast or some, um, you know, executive striking a deal with the studio. It's, it's actually nonstop. So I think that if it is a trend, it's definitely a huge growth period. And and I think that as long as we make money at the box office and or I guess draw in perhaps new subscribers, if you're talking about right. content, then I think we are um, we're good to go. I don't think that it's going to be slowing down. Yeah. So if I can uh, jump in real quick. Absolutely. I love it, Nancy. Absolutely. And I think one key difference right between 25 years ago and today, uh, there's a couple key differences. One thing that I've noticed a lot in the music industry is the rise of Asian soft power. Mm -hmm. uh, so not just Asian American, right? But Asian purchasing dollars and also the Asian industry. You know, you look at Joy Luck Club and, and uh, All American Girl and where things were in the early 90s. And I think one of the key environmental differences is that back then there kind of was no international market. Right, China literally didn't have movie theaters, uh, at least not not in the same way that they do now, where they drive international box offices. Right. So in the music industry, for example, right now, uh, I don't know if uh, y'all are both aware of this, but there's a huge Asian hip hop boom. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Korean hip hop has been killing it for a while, but uh, even Chinese and Indonesian, y'all may remember. Rich Chiga, right, who changed his name to Rich Brian because that name was very unfortunate. But those names, uh, so his record label, 88 Rising, which was founded by an Asian American and is based on bringing Asian hip hop talent to the US, getting credibility here and then blowing up in the market there too. They have become some of the most exciting faces and sounds in trap music, right, which is this like current sort of predominating hip hop genre. And one big difference that I see between then and now is now like, uh, what is it, um, right? Legendary and a lot of these film studios now have Chinese investors and dollars behind them. So I remember watching Edge of Seventeen, right? And the love interest is a, Chi I think Chinese Canadian actor, right? Hayden Sato who is playing a Korean American kid. And I think that you don't see that without some of these Asian dollars behind it. And, and that to me, going back to the initial question, Irene, to me, that's one of the key factors that says that this isn't just a moment or, or uh, somebody was joking around on my Facebook thread about always be my maybe saying we went from Asian August to Asian always. <laughs> And, right, and, and I think that, that that's part of what this, this movement is. If we're asking about will this last, um, it is tied to these geopolitical shifts. Yeah, I like that. I think that, uh, I think that Asia always had a robust, um, like Hong Kong has had a really robust filmmaking um, industry. I think there just hasn't been as much crossover as it as mm -hmm. there is now. Right. And like you said, it's because China's box office is now only second to, the, to Hollywood. And so it's everybody wants to get that China money <laughs> and they're really trying very hard, especially since China also limits the number of imported films per year. And 
And so, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, because it's actually, there's a lot of projections that it's going to overtake the Hollywood box office, like any time. And so I think that, and, and like there are movies that don't do well here. Like I think there was a movie, Skyscraper, with mm-hmm. uh, The Rock that didn't do so well in the United States, but did amazing in China. And so it, mm-hmm. it, it basically made all its money internationally, not, not within the domestic U.S. market. So yeah, so I think that that's absolutely the case. And even though there has always been, and I think that like where we are, where now we actually know about Korean filmmakers, which we didn't, you know, know. I mean, people, uh, cinephiles have always known, right? But I think that now recently people are, are more aware. And the fact that, you know, that Burning cast Stephen Yoon. So there is like what, you're, what you were talking about, Jason, like crossover of just either, either uh, people in Asia investing in, Asia, in U.S. Hollywood films with Asian American actors or even Asian American actors appearing in um, Asian films, and and I think that and he was in um, that film. What is that film that was on Netflix? Okja. Okja, yeah. So he was in <clears> Okja <throat> prior to that, and so yeah, this is really. I mean, there's always been called like Bruce Lee did this, right? So it's not anything new, Bruce Lee. But Bruce Lee had to. I think Stephen Yu, maybe Stephen Yu had to too in some ways because there was, <laughs> I think, post uh, Walking Dead, there was this kind of uh, some somebody like like was sharing that he was auditioning for like five line, five line roles. And everyone was like horrified because that's, that is what Bruce Lee had to do, right? He was like, I'm, I'm done with Hollywood. I'm going to go to Hong Kong. And so I think that some of it is out of necessity, but I think that now there is now, I think Hollywood recognizes, oh, well, Asia, Asia isn't just kind of uh, where you go where you can't make it in Hollywood, but actually Asia is where it's a second market, right? That, um, that mm-hmm. they want to get a piece of. I love it. I, I love all of this so much. I, I know there's so much that we can cover on various different topics. You know, one of the uh, most of the articles that have been out, including yours, talking about, you know, the subtle subversiveness of always be my maybe and the, and the Asian male being, you know, the sex symbol and then it's time and come into their own, all of that. There's just so much that's been written out there. But I kind of want to talk about, I want to ask you both on your input of this concept of how we break away from our comparison to like the white gaze and how I think one of the things that I loved about Always Be My Maybe is that so much of it, we didn't have to, there was no explanation, right? Either you understood the subtle cultural references that were happening from the kids taking their shoes off, you know, right when they walk in the door to the body scrubbing that Randall Park and his dad went on was receiving, like there was just so much of the culture in there that was not explained and didn't seem to be created for the white gaze. And yet, I feel like this is one of those things, and Nancy, your article is so phenomenal or so great, because when we talk about the Asian male coming into his being and now being a sex symbol, et cetera, all these things, I still feel that it is against a standard of whiteness, you know, where there's a certain stature, a certain look, all these things that are considered sexy or appealing. It's still pretty much from the centering of a white gaze, you know, even biracial Asians are the ones because they have a Western look about them, right? There's still big eyes and, you know, a bone structure that's a certain way. And I would just love to hear from you both on your take on that, whether you agree or disagree, you know, I just want to pose that question out there. Are we, is there going to be a progression moving forward where we can even celebrate 
I have been taking a personal stand to not wear makeup, to not make my eyes bigger and more white and to embrace that my Asian-ness in which my nose is flatter and smaller and like I can't wear certain glasses, et cetera. You know, all these things that we just have to live by in the world that we have or that we, you know, we survive in. And so I just love your, both your perspectives on whether you agree or is there progression moving forward where the smaller statured Asian male will still be considered the sex symbol or is he going to be the butt of the joke? So I'd love to pose that question out there. So I think that prior, I think Crazy Rich Asians, I wrote that I think most of the men that were seen as attractive definitely fit a Western mm-hmm. um, standard of beauty in terms of the kind of really buff, really muscular, abs everywhere. And I think that if you look at Asia, I don't think that that is the, necessarily the, the beauty standard for men. In fact, it's much more, I think, metrosexual. I, I, I think about watching uh, Boys Over Flowers. Was it Boys Over Flowers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, not Korean, but I wanted to know what that was all about. And, uh, and I was... I, I kept watching. I hated it, but I kept watching. I hated it. I hated it because of the, the there was this patriarchy that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to yeah. do with race. It was actually more just gender. But I I kept watching because I wanted to see their outfits. I mean, their clothes, their their scarves, their they wore pink, and it was so beautiful. And I realized I've never seen men wear such beautiful clothes in Hollywood yeah. films that I was just attracted to that so much. Mm. And their hair, too. Their hair, their different mm-hmm. lengths and different styles and different colors. And I guess the idea is that they are more beautiful than flowers. To kind of compare boys to flowers is <laughs> definitely not toxic masculinity, you know? And so I think I really appreciated that. And so I think, yeah, so I think uh, Crazy Rich Asians is definitely Asian American or Asian diaspora, I think, kind of uh, mm-hmm. representing men as, as just naked and buff all the time, right? <laughs> so, um, but, but I think the beauty of Always Be My Maybe is that we have Randall Park, right? And Randall Park is, I mean, you do actually see him without a shirt. And, and surprisingly, he actually does have some muscles. Not surprisingly, yeah. but it's like, you know, like, 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 right. the, like his bod was actually kind of like, you know, sexy. But he wasn't was like, like oh, he doesn't have a dad bod. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's still a dad bod, just a, a nicer <laughs> without the beer belly, right? right, right. <laughs> but, um, but still, it wasn't like, I didn't see a six pack. I didn't see like super, you know, he wasn't tan. He was, he was chiseled sort of, you know, just the arms. So anyway, he was normal, like normal, healthy right. guy, right? And I think that um, his look also and his, his, his mannerisms isn't kind of a, the toxic masculine mannerism. He's awkward. Right. He's charming. He's silly. Yeah. So I think he really represents kind of an, a new Asian American man, the everyman. And that's, I think that is why I, I wrote about, I thought that that was the most significant contribution because Keanu Day Kim and Keanu Reeves, like we've already known for you know <laughs> eons that they were sexy, right? I mean, literally, Daniel Day Kim was on like you know People Magazine, mm-hmm. sexiest men, and so I think that um, that yes, and and but interestingly, I think he doesn't necessarily look the same as maybe a white, right. you know, a white male kind of a gaze or the gaze that that would deem him attractive. But he is, yeah, yeah, anyway, but he is, you know, he's got the, the kind of triangle body and all of that. <laughs> and so, anyway, so yeah, I think that that's, that's the difference with, it's refreshing to see in every man. And I think Steven Yeun also played that in um, <laughs> Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really John Cho, too. I mean, we've had, 
we've had different types of Asian American men, but I think all of a sudden now we have kind of not the perfect kind of Hugh Grant-esque, right? Or maybe even Seth Rogen, though Randall Park is way better looking than Seth Rogen. Yes. But Seth Rogen is kind of my standard of like some dude who doesn't look anything like a leading man. Right. And play a leading man. Like I saw Longshot and I was like, that is just unbelievable. That Charlie's just Charlie's so on. We're fall in love with Seth Rogen. Not in a million years would that ever happen. That is a fantasy. Right. A total right. fantasy. And so I, I, I welcome the day that actually, actually Asian American women too, that we could be and every woman. I mean, women, I think, unfortunately, even white women are still held at a different standard, right? They really have to be gorgeous. And it's really hard right. for people to be in wrong. I mean, Ali Wong is gorgeous, right? Mm-hmm. And so although I did notice, so I wonder if this is an Asian American thing, she was never dressed super sexy. Like she was mm-hmm. sensible. Like, she, she, like the things that she wore is what I would wear, right? Right. I don't wear things that show like too much skin, right? Yeah. And she had nothing that showed her like cleavage or anything. And I respected that so much, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a, that is a subtle anti-exoticization of Asian women. Yes. And her glasses. I was like, I love that she was wearing glasses every single scene. There was never a time when, even with her glamour, like, evening gown, she had, she was rocking her glitter glasses. And it was just so great. I loved it. The only time she removed it was the skinny scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only time. <laughs> Which made it very significant, right? It was like, yes. okay, I'm finally, you know, letting part of myself down in order to be yep. vulnerable with you, Randall. I love it. Jason, I want to throw, I want to hear your thoughts. So I've been actually, I think that there's been a shift and it starts uh, in the mid uh, 2000s, the mid aughts with the hipsters. There's been this gradual shifting away from what I, in my mind, call the Ralph Lauren look (laughs) towards, I think, more of what's traditionally been an East Asian beauty aesthetic, specifically for men. And I, I, I've wondered about this. Uh, so I'm, I'm really a fan of and in, invested in, if not involved in, fashion. And you see this especially in street fashion, uh, meaning anything tied to skate or hip-hop or even broad urban culture. You look at what, like, the Migos are wearing, right? So for those who are unfamiliar, Migos, this uh, trio of rappers from Atlanta, and all of these guys in Atlanta... These days, they look a lot more like Andre 3000 than like Big Boy. They look, uh, and, and this is actually how you can tell whether somebody who's talking about hip hop culture, right, which is my field of expertise, whether a film or a TV series or a book or anything is portraying hip hop culture with an eye to its contemporary trends, mm-hmm. baggy clothes, Looking like 50 Cent is very 15 years ago. If you're casting a rapper in 2019, they're wearing uh, slim-fitted, like like skinny jeans. They're wearing a Louis Vuitton purse. uh, And they're wearing like diamond chokers. Mm -hmm. And the aesthetic overall, you actually see a lot of young black men adopting aesthetics that they've drawn from East Asian pop culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Goku, anime, Uh, is wildly popular in these groups. And I think at least what I've noticed in music in general, because where hip hop goes, 
uh, because where Black America goes, that's where mainstream music culture goes. Mm -hmm. And I think that in some ways, Black America has been migrating towards East Asia. You can see it with Pharrell and his close, close friendship with Nigo, who is, you know, Japanese, making Japanese culture, hip hop culture. And the other half of Pharrell's production team, the Neptunes, is Chad Hugo, who is Filipino-American from Virginia. And I think that there is something there where in a lot of, and, and I go back to like sort of sociological, global cultural factors, you can look at sort of this ex, expose of toxic masculinity that's, that's going on. And I think a lot of people are looking for an alternative form of masculinity. Now, the danger, there's a danger, right, of seizing onto this thing and saying this is so different uh, from what we've had. Because in a way, it's actually sort of re-emasculating. The flip side of that is there's actually a dangerous patriarchy and, and wild misogyny in Asia and especially East Asian cultures. And there's a way of substituting an aesthetic for what has gone before without actually doing the work of uprooting the culture that's being replaced. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, that, those are some of the things I see and, and some of the things that I think make it culturally like it was inevitable that people are searching for a new aesthetic and this is where they find it. Well, I and that's, piece, oh, go I, wrote, I wrote a piece on Terrace House which, was, uh, which is a, a Japanese uh, reality show that's now on Netflix and internationally broadcast and really popular in the States. And I think that uh, it really shows a Japanese man crying without any judgment and kind of like there was one guy who slept with stuffed animals and uh, because it's kind of like a big brother, they all live in the same house. And I, 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 yeah, I wrote about how it was challenging uh, Western notions of masculinity, which are toxic because not being able to express emotions is a major problem. And um, yeah, and uh, although it was still, I think there were still traditional notions of engagement in terms of building relationships, it was definitely a different take on at least uh, emotional, you know, just being able to cry. And I think that seeing that not as something that's of a deficit, but something that is actually powerful. So fascinating. I actually just read an article that was talking about the Taiwanese bill that just got passed for LGBTQ marriages. And this woman was saying how the gay community, there was acceptance of the gay community in Chinese culture, in Taiwanese culture, before colonization happened, mm-hmm. and that it was westernization that brought oppression and marginalization because of the toxic masculinity like mindset. And so it was really interesting as she was diving into that and how then going back and kind of reclaiming what is the standardization of beauty and good looks and all of these things of what's sexy according to Asian Eastern standards. So it's just, it's so complex and I love it of as we're like unpacking as these things are moving forward and coming to the forefront. I love how we are kind of regaining our, or reclaiming our history and our culture in that sense. I do, Jason, you triggered a question for me on, you know, there's been a lot of conversation in particular with K-pop, hip-hop on cultural appropriation of the urban black community. And then it's, it's as you said, kind of been, you know, where the urban black community is kind of taking on Asian culture and aesthetics. I mean, we saw it 
Nicki Minaj got in trouble. There was, um, I forget, I don't think it was, I forget who the artist was, but it was like the last performance of the Grammys after Jesse Williams dropped his amazing, powerful speech telling folks to sit down. And then they came out and there were these geisha girls dancing around as this guy, I forget who it was, who was doing a performance. And it was just like, it makes me look like, okay, so where are the lines drawn when we're talking about cultural appropriation versus adopting different aesthetics from one another and has Asian music in particular with the hip hop genre come to a place where now there is it's not about appropriation but respectability and ownership because like I just watched, you know, finish World of Dance. And I loved it because there was a hip hop dance crew called the Hema, which is from South Korea, but they interwove both urban hip hop dance moves with aesthetics that were very East Asian. And then the Kings who won the champ, they won the whole thing and they interspersed Bollywood in a lot of their hip hop routine, et cetera. So it was just fascinating to see how these Asian groups are now taking what is the culture of urban and uh, intersecting it with their own culture. But I'd love to hear your input on that. Uh, Yeah, I think there's this presumption in some ways that the the first thing I want to say is that we got to be very careful to not let cultural appropriation mean doing something it doesn't look like you're allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that actually definitely just reinforces unhelpful uh, racial barriers, I think. Mm-hmm. So to me, very particularly, we need a strong definition of cultural appropriation and strong in the sense that it allows us to weed out false positives. So at least the way I understand it, cultural appropriation is the exploitation of cultural products for gain without acknowledgement or a portion of that gain going back to the initial community, mm-hmm. right? So with that said, what a lot of people don't know about the Chinese hip hop industry, which is what my connection is, is that a lot of that actually, the roots of Chinese hip hop come actually from black folks who went to China and used this as a form of cultural interchange. So I always say, uh, my boy Dana, uh, not a lot of people know this. A lot of the peeps, so Rap of China was the big competition show that about two years ago launched hip hop into the Chinese consciousness, uh, the mainstream consciousness. A lot of the finalists on that show actually came up through this competitive circuit that my buddy Dana runs. Dana's uh, African-American dude from Detroit. He's been in China literally 20 years. Uh, he went as a student and just stayed. And he's, he runs the hip hop scene in Shanghai and around China. And there's definitely people who are, who've acquired skills that are traditionally associated with rap culture that have no connection whatsoever to the culture itself. Mm. But there's this other sort of competing tradition of hip hop in China That is kids who didn't just watch it online and wanted it. Kids who were trained by my friend Dana and other folks who have a deep appreciation and love for it. And they, in so many ways, give back. For example, hip hop dance groups are starting to be flown over and get money over there. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was there, they'd throw concerts all the time. Getting, flying over black artists with credibility who are known to be deeply authentic Mm -hmm. over 
and, and getting them paid to do shows in China. Uh, so KRS-One, uh, the seminal rapper, famously said in the 90s, I'm fine with selling out if what they're buying is authenticity. I'm not fine with selling out if what that means is they're telling me to tap dance for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, I think that it becomes much more complicated when we're talking about things beyond just the superficial, like, oh, Chinese people doing hip hop. That seems mm-hmm. so, you know, that, that seems like such a juxtaposition. And we've actually got to go into the stories of where it comes from. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. Okay, we only have a few minutes left. So I kind of, I want to pose this last question in particular to Nancy. I still feel that there, with this rise of Asian American and Asian representation happening in media, in all of the different genres and categories, there is still this otherness that exists, in particular when we're talking about the white community. The other day I was looking on this white evangelical woman's Facebook page and she had commented how BTS makes her feel old and the way the joke was set up it seemed as if she was joking how she was old and yet it was at the expense of BTS at the expense of people of color at the expense of the this Asian American boy band group It, it was so microaggressive in the sense of even when you read the comments afterwards, it was very much these other white women who were like, it's so weird how they're getting so popular. Like, it's so weird how my kids want to learn Korean. And I just kept wanting to like reply to every one of these white people in particular, these women who were, I was just like, why is this weird for you? Like you need to break that down and you need to understand it. And you know, we still encounter these microaggressive colonized viewpoints of otherness or extreme, again, fetishization. And so, like, my last question I wanted to ask in your wisdom is we tie a ribbon and solve all these problems that we have. How do we move forward in, as the rise is happening, to eliminate that, if we even can? Is there something by which our listeners could take action to move this conversation forward in their own mindset and as they're having engaged in conversations with one another, um, in particular, their white communities? I think this ties in well with the cultural appropriation question. It's, um, I think when you, you, when you, it's about cultural exchange and understanding that we are in a global society. And so there are going to be, especially in a multicultural society, but I guess with the BTS, it's really, you know, cross-cultural now. And whether people are looking at things that they don't understand as something to learn from or something to reject. Right. We are in a, I mean, this ties into immigration as well, right? The kind of fear of the other. And I think that in those examples that you gave, there's a fear of like, what, oh, this is so weird. It's kind of like actually there was a reaction to bow, you know, sorry, spoiler, but in the, in the short bow that was right before the Incredibles, they, they, uh, there's a, you know, the, the mother actually consumes this kind of bow child at one point. And there was a social media kind of uproar because the one person, a white woman said that that was so, you know, she didn't get it at all. She was so right. strange. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of Asian Americans took offense. They're like, it, it felt personal. Like, what? You don't get that? I mean, you don't get that. Someone would love their child so much that they basically are eating them. <laughs> um, that it's a metaphor. <laughs> and so I think that BTS, you know, that, that the fact that their kids are growing up, it's wonderful, actually, in a lot of ways that their yep. kids are growing up, like, I don't care if it's Korean. I'm going to learn what they're right. saying and I'm going to learn how to say it. 
Right. Um, and you know, there's some sort of chant where it's like, if you're in the army, you have to actually learn all their real Korean names. Yes. And, mm. them. and you know, for even like other Asian Americans that don't speak Korean, like learning that, that's not <laughs> easy. <laughs> I mean, for, for Asian Americans, right, who are not even right. maybe even familiar with their own language to learn Korean. It's just so fascinating, I think. I don't know any of their names. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, right. It's like to assume that just because you're Korean American, you would know Right. Name. I mean, all of it is new, right? Because right. It, is, it is culture that is being imported from somewhere else. And yep. I think I think K-pop is really interesting because they understand, they already get it. That's why they're so yep. popular, right? Because they yep. intentionally put different styles of music and different yep. languages into their songs so that they can fit in anywhere, right? And isn't that what people in the United States should want? That we can actually learn a little bit about each culture so that we can actually fit in and also accommodate and be able to welcome different cultures into our society. If we had that kind of, if we had BTS's philosophy or K-pop philosophy about how to, how to kind of take over the world <laughs> by, by actually, you know, like respecting all cultures and incorporating them into your, uh, your product. <laughs> Although that sounds so capitalistic, but I guess we can you know, do it differently, right? We could do it in terms of, instead of saying, that's weird. It's like, oh my gosh, my child is wanting to learn Korean. I can't right. even get her to do her homework. You know, it's like, exactly. that's, that would be kind of the more, I think, healthy attitude, especially as Christians. I think, you know, Christians, right. we are supposed to, you know, reach the world for, you right. know, for the gospel. And so by saying like parts of the world are weird, that is actually showing some growth areas so right any last thoughts Jason I just I think Nancy is amazing uh <laughs> I really appreciate hearing her thoughts directly from the source and I love in a way I think that this conversation illustrates a fascinating thing that I felt watching Always Be My Maybe, which I actually got to watch with Nancy and hear a lot of amazing I'm so jealous I couldn't make that. We saw it in a theater, so that was, and it was a, it was a really cushy theater and they gave us free, like, free alcohol and free popcorn so and, and free swag. We were definitely spoiled. It was good. But what struck me over and over again at Always Be My Maybe is you've got Asian, it's, it's like the Bechdel test, right? It's, Asian Americans looking at each other and talking, ironically, not about being Asian American, but just talking about each other. Right. And it strikes me that this conversation is the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's Asian Americans. And for the first time in a long time, we get to talk about what our people are making, not about what our people aren't making or what about, or, 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 or what dominant power is putting us in but we're talking about choices that our people get to make. Right. Um, and that's a really special time uh, in our lives and, and hopefully not a unique time historically going forward. Yeah, absolutely. This was a wonderful last episode. Thank you so much, Nancy, for your time. Truly, truly, I greatly appreciate it. I hope all of you as listeners have enjoyed this season. I just feel like we have ended on such a significant, relevant high note for this season. And for all of you who have been listening, please do continue to spread the word. This podcast will be available. Share it. We have gotten so much feedback on how helpful these conversations have been in processing and being more critical in our thought process, in our identity formation and unpacking all the different elements and aspects of what it means to be Asian American in the United States in particular. I do want to acknowledge that all three of us 
today speaking on this issue um, have been East Asian. And so we understand that there are, you know, the Southeast Asian representation and the South representation are not part of this conversation. And so we would love to continue this for season three to, you know, unpack even more and on a deeper level. So thank you all for listening. It has been my beyond my pleasure and honor to be your host for this season and make sure to follow me and Jason and especially Nancy because she is just a ball of wisdom and information and I admire her from both afar and near um, all the time so thank you all so much I am Irene Cho I have been your host for the season for Centering we're all about community at Centering We invite you to join the conversation by sending your comments and questions at centeringpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to visit our website at centered.today for a list of other shows and resources. This episode is produced by Jason Chu, edited by Carl Catedral with music by Mark Redito. I'm your host, Irene Cho. And above all else, we want to remind you that God embraces all of who you are.